0: Lung cancer kills 18 Americans every hour, 130,000 people a year. That's more than breast, colon, and prostate cancer combined. For decades, doctors caught most lung cancers too late.
1: Half the patients were gone in in less than 12 months.
0: An early detection test finally arrived around 2011, but it comes with some real risks, and take-up has been abysmal. Now, doctors are pushing to expand the test to millions more people. Today, balancing the promise and perils of the tool for catching America's top cancer killer. From the studio at the Leonard Davis Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gorenstein, and this is Tradeoffs. Lung cancer deaths in the U.S. peaked in 1991. Gerard Silvestri says this peak was really a valley.
1: It was just a horrific disease. There were actually a few that were cured, but not many.
0: In the early 90s, Gerard was finishing his training in pulmonary medicine at Dartmouth. The New York City native says the four chemotherapy drugs available to his patients made him feel like David going after Goliath.
1: All of them were terrible, and you know everyone's hair fell out. Everybody had uh, stomach issues.
0: Other doctors had mammograms and pap smears to catch diseases earlier. Some of those screens had been around since the 1920s. But still, here, in the 1990s, doctors like Gerard typically diagnosed lung cancer only after a patient felt something.
1: There are no pain receptors in the lung tissue itself. So the tumor either had to get big enough to reach the wall of the lung, had to spread outside, so go to the brain and cause headaches, or the bone and cause bone pain, or spread into the airway where there would then maybe cough up blood.
0: This is what made lung cancer so lethal. By the time patients showed up, the odds of surviving were low. Then, around the turn of the century,
1: so you've heard about DVD. Well, this is DVD.
0: As a lot of new tech took off,
1: he calls his company Amazon.com. Day.
2: Earth's now X. everyone can enjoy the freedom of a personal cellular phone. This T scan,
0: formerly called a computed tomography scan, caught fire in medicine. All of a sudden, doctors were using it to diagnose everything from pneumonia to kidney stones. Gerard described this magical machine to me like being rolled through a giant donut, a donut that snaps cross-sectional pictures of your
1: body. It's cutting you, slicing you like a loaf of bread, and you're looking up and into those slices, and so you can see really tiny changes in the lung itself.
0: The National Cancer Institute in 2002 launched a massive randomized controlled trial, enrolling 50,000 people with a history of heavy smoking, lung cancer's biggest culprit. The question, does a CT scan reduce lung cancer mortality more than a chest x-ray? It took nearly a decade to gather the data. By 2011, doctors had their answer. CT scans had cut lung cancer deaths by 20%. For two decades, most of Gerard Silvestri's diagnosis conversations went like
1: this. Look, we can hopefully control your disease, but I have to tell you, this uh, of the deck of cards you've been dealt, this is serious, really serious.
0: With CT scanning, more conversations could go like this.
1: Hey, look, you know, we found this thing small. If you had to have cancer, nobody wants cancer, but if you had to have it, this is the one we want. And why is that? Because in five years, you know, we're going to be having a party, right? And like, I just want to put it out there now. I like top-shelf vodka.
0: Doctors finally had a new weapon in their war with Goliath. For many of us, military metaphors come to mind when we talk about the fight Against cancer.
3: The United States has been involved in a national war. We know it will take an army to defeat this disease. The artillery is found in the laboratory as scientists unite for a war on cancer.
4: While there have been substantial achievements since the crusade began, we are far from winning this war.
0: And the U.S. has stacked up victories these last five decades. We've boosted funding, unlocked incredible treatments and turn some cancers into chronic conditions. But wars have casualties. In the race to deploy new cancer screening weapons, doctors, researchers, and even patient advocates have made serious mistakes.
4: We've been taught ever since we were on our mother's knee that the way to deal with cancer is find it early and cut it out. Unfortunately, many people don't understand that there can be a downside to screening. Johns Hopkins professor
0: and doctor Otis Brawley was the chief medical officer at the American Cancer Society until 2018. Talking with Otis feels like skimming through a book of cautionary tales. Some of the first screening missteps, he says, date back to the 1950s. (laughs) when the American Cancer Society pushed pap smears to catch
4: cervical cancer. The only problem was pathologists at the time didn't know how to read pap smears. So some of these women got hysterectomies. This is 20 and 30-year-old women. These are women who were rendered infertile unnecessarily
0: doctors misread early mammograms in the 70s, cut out thyroid cancers that could have just been monitored. Then there's the prostate cancer screening in the 1990s, where researchers quickly learned tests could lead to false alarms, unnecessary surgeries, and hundreds of millions of dollars in wasteful care for some men. And even though national experts advise doctors to stop testing men over 70, nearly one in three still get screened today. Otis says some cancer warriors just haven't backed
4: down. There's even a group of folks who literally said, we understand that it's not proven, but we have to do something because people are dying out there. You know, which which is an interesting thing to say. We We know what we're doing probably doesn't work, but we have to do something. So we're going to do what doesn't work.
0: Lung cancer screening, like its predecessors, carries its own downsides and dangers, risks some doctors rarely discuss with their patients. Gerard Silvestri thinks the most common pitfall is so important to explain, he's come up with this analogy.
1: Think of the lung as a 2-liter bottle of Coke. And in the middle of that 2-liter bottle of Coke, there's something a pea-sized, right?
0: Once the CT scan detects the pea, doctors try to confirm if it's cancer. And that's when patients enter risky
1: territory. You refer the patient for surgery, so the surgeon operates. After the operation, the patient ends up developing respiratory failure and pneumonia. They end up in the ICU for 30 days. They end up getting a tracheostomy for complications, and they eventually get transferred out to a long-term acute care facility somewhere, and then they die. And... Oh, by the way, it turned out that the thing that you took out was not cancer.
0: Gerard is clear. This is the absolute worst case, and it's really rare. The point, though, is when you use a super-powered camera to look for lung spots in people who have smoked for decades, they're pretty easy to find. Like in that big national trial, one in four people had a positive scan but 96% of the time, that P was something else, maybe scar tissue or a harmless lump. Some got extra scans, biopsies, even surgery. A lot of worry and money just to find out they didn't even have cancer.
5: I'm less concerned that we're doing more harm than good.
0: University of Michigan radiologist Ella Kazarouni heads up the National Lung Cancer Roundtable a public-private coalition convened by the American Cancer Society. She's confident lung cancer is the beginning of a new chapter in screening history. One of the big differences, doctors have a lot more data, and they're using it. For example, the American College of Radiology in 2014 knew all of those benign peas in the Coke bottle were a problem and set out to fix it they analyzed screening data from around the world and realized they could safely raise the bar on what counts as a suspicious spot from four millimeters in size to six.
5: Now that might sound like a tiny, tiny difference of two millimeters, but the majority of nodules we see are, are quite small. And so by raising that threshold, we've decreased the number of positive screens and a lower number of follow-up tests and diagnostic procedures having to happen.
0: The same group now tracks nearly every scan in the U.S., more than two million so far, on the lookout for other quality and safety issues.
5: That's the type of data that we have today that, you know, we didn't have when breast cancer screening was implemented and even prostate cancer screening.
0: Data on those scans and the number of unnecessary surgeries and complications they've caused have yet to be published. Until we see those stats, we can't know for sure whether lung cancer screening is heeding the long list of cautionary tales or becoming one. One thing we do already know, doctors are scanning far fewer people than expected. We'll explain why after the break. Welcome back. Despite improved treatments and a decades-long decline in smoking, lung cancer still kills more than 130,000 Americans every year. Early detection CT scans have the power to save tens of thousands of lives, but like many medical interventions, they come with some rare but real dangers. Medical University of South Carolina pulmonologist Gerard Silvestri says the evidence is strong. Those risks are worth it if you're really in danger of getting the disease.
1: So there's no question it works. The question is, can we increase uptake in the right population?
0: Unfortunately, the answer so far is no. The participation rate for common, albeit much older, cancer screens like mammograms and colonoscopies is close to 70%. For lung cancer, it's about 6 A panel of national disease experts, known as the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, first recommended lung cancer screening in 2013 for some 8 million people. The good news is that researchers now have a better handle on the barriers that have kept this medical breakthrough out of reach for most. The bad news, these obstacles are tough to overcome. The first is awareness.
5: Mammography and breast cancer screening is cocktail conversation. It's, you know, conversation on the sidelines of sports games. Lung cancer screening isn't there.
0: University of Michigan radiologist Ella Casaruni calls this test the toddler of the cancer screening world, still really new to both patients and providers, especially in primary care. But both breast and colon cancer screenings had uptake rates around 30% in their early years, according to the American Cancer Society. So, Ella chalks some of the problem up to lung cancer's conspicuous absence from the national stage.
5: We still talk about the Katie Cork effect today in colon cancer screening.
0: Hi, everybody. Here we are uh, in my
6: kitchen. It's about 18 hours before I get my first colonoscopy.
4: And before my birthday, Katie asked me if she could accompany me. For my first colonoscopy, you know. You have
1: Harry the- is having a colonoscopy live and with him throughout the morning is CBS Evening News anchor Katie Couric. When you
4: look about- at
5: lung cancer and try and find your Katie Couric, it's really challenging. People don't want to have their legacy associated with something that they feel is stigmatizing.
0: Stigma dogs the world of lung cancer. It's not
5: just a name, it's... It's almost like a scarlet letter.
0: Lisa Carter-Harris, a nurse practitioner and behavioral scientist at Memorial Sloan-Kettering, says the disease suffers from a double standard.
5: If someone tells you that they had a heart attack, do you look at them and say, oh, you're not vegan and you don't run three days a week? We don't do that. But if someone tells you they have lung cancer, what's the first thing you, people say?
0: Oh, I didn't know you smoked. Lisa says stigma doesn't just get in the way of celebrity endorsements and ad campaigns.
5: I was actually doing research on people who were diagnosed with lung cancer and having them tell their story.
0: She found stigma affects people who smoke so much, they're delaying important care.
5: You know, I had one patient say, I just feel like I'm taking up resources. You know, I did this to myself.
0: Lisa hopes the more forgiving attitudes towards opioid use spill over to people who smoke. Shifting from a moral failing towards suffering from a hard-to-beat addiction. The other big drag on screening growth? There's a lot of hoops to jump through. Talking with your doc about smoking, finding a hospital with a CT scanner, coming back year after year, the list goes on. Those tasks may be easy enough for some, but Gerard Silvestri points out smoking is much more common among the uninsured and people with low incomes, the kind of people who might not have primary care or time off from work.
1: So all these other social determinants come into effect, and I think people are completely underestimating this like wildly underestimating it for all of lung cancer screening because of that demographic of where smokers lie, education, insurance, socioeconomic status.
0: There's a third and final lesson researchers have learned over the decades. Screening's been around, and there's a much easier fix. In fact, it's already happened.
5: A federal task force is rewriting the rule book when it comes to the number one cancer killer. In our New area. recommendations out today lower the screening age from 55 to 50, for and the smoking years history. from 30 years to 20 years.
0: The original 2013 screening criteria missed some high risk groups, including younger black people. Black men have by far the highest lung cancer mortality rate of any group. In March, the same panel of disease experts updated the guidelines doubling the number of Americans eligible for lung cancer screening, from about 8 to 15 million. Private insurers are required to cover screenings for the newly eligible, but Medicare and Medicaid are still deciding whether to follow suit. Gerard says simply making the pie bigger, though, doesn't guarantee more people get a piece.
1: We have the potential to make many more African Americans eligible based on these new criteria. Taking that potential and realizing it is a completely different story.
0: It's a recurring theme in medicine that we put far more money and effort into discovering incredible new advances than we do into ensuring that they're accessible to all who could benefit. We're seeing this play out right now with COVID vaccines. And Otis Brawley says cancer's been plagued by the exact same
4: problems the most important paper of my entire career, by the way, estimated that of 600,000 people dying per year of cancer, 132,000 could be prevented if everybody got everything that's available from screening to diagnosis, treatment, and prevention. Who are the ones who don't get everything? Poor people, the people who traditionally suffer from health disparities.
0: Without larger systemic solutions, whittling away at the twin barriers of awareness and access means some people will continue to die, even though we have the technology to keep them alive. Some lung cancer screening programs are going after those barriers more aggressively than others. Until COVID hit, staff at the program at Temple University Hospital in North Philadelphia swarmed every health fair, church, mosque, and primary care office that they could find.
5: The stigma of lung cancer as lethal, and there's nothing that you can do about it. That's a large part of what we're trying to change.
0: Thoracic surgeon Sherry Erkman started the program in 2014, just after the first guidelines came out. Since then, Sherry has consistently driven her team towards one goal, get people in the door. Temple sits in a predominantly black, low-income neighborhood. Community members ranked convenience as a top priority in a survey the program put out several years back. Inconvenience was one lung cancer screening problem Sherry could get her arms around. So there are many different steps to lung cancer
5: screening and Navigating all of those steps is quite a challenge, especially when resources may be limited, time may be limited.
0: Sherry's team created a kind of one-stop cancer screening shop.
5: So they would come in, get the scan, get the results, and know what the next steps were with a single visit.
0: Sherry knows the plan to make screening more visible and easier to access has begun paying off. Their screening rate in Temple's zip code is about 10 percent, nearly double the national average. About 60 percent of the 2,000 patients screened so far are black in a city that's 43 percent black. And more than 8 out of 10 cancers they've caught have been at an early stage. Nobody at the hospital is satisfied with the program's scale yet, but even with modest numbers, there's a hint of something remarkable starting to happen. It happened for Ida Pittman and her family. When the 60-year-old North Philly native found out she had stage 1 lung cancer late last year, she worried first about her health. A very close second, how her family would react. I wasn't
6: real scared. I was just a little scared. I had my family members was more scared
3: than I were.
0: (laughs) Ida's cousin, Helena Price, understood why.
3: When they hear cancer, they
0: automatically
3: think death. They don't look at it as something that you can
0: recover from. Helena and Ida are close. So close, they call each other sister cousins. The pair grew up in the same house, have almost identical birthdays, and watched together the disease sweep through their home.
3: Her mother passed away from cancer. My mother passed away from cancer.
0: Ida knew, given their history, breaking the news would be hard. So she tapped her sister-cousin to play her special role in the family, medical translator. Having worked as a hospital registrar for decades, Helena was comfortable navigating the medical system, the jargon, and all the white coats.
6: I wanted them to hear it straight, the straight story of what I was going through.
0: 25 relatives crowded into Ida's house one evening, wondering and worried. Helena started with the good part first.
3: It's just the spot. She's in the beginning stage, which is good. And I explained to them exactly what the doctor told me, that after the surgery, as long as they got everything, then she may not need the chemo, she may not need the radiation because they caught it in an early stage.
0: But the fear of cancer ran so deep, Ida says her granddaughter and her son in particular missed what Helena actually said.
6: My son took it so bad, like, cause my mom died of cancer. He feels though my mom's gonna go and get this operation and my mom's gonna die. They was crying and all of this, you know, they thought they was gonna lose me.
0: Sherry's team removed Ida's cancer with a single procedure on November 12th last year.
5: And she returned to work within six weeks of
0: her surgery.
6: January the 4th of 2021, and I've been working since.
0: It's easy to understand why cancer has held such a tight grip on Ida and Helena's family and so many other families, given lung cancer was diagnosed so late for so long. But Ida's success and the other screening success stories are piercing the deeply held conviction that the disease is invincible. And that is the remarkable thing. Starting to happen.
6: I'm living proof. So they know you go to the doctor, you find out what's going on with yourself, you go do what you got to do, get it treated, and get it over with. And just take care of yourself.
0: It's a new chapter for the family, a story Helena knows she's going to keep telling.
3: I have the family gatherings at Christmas. So this Christmas, unfortunately, due to COVID, we didn't have a, a family gathering. But It doesn't matter if it's five years from now, ten years from now, that we get together again. It will be brought up again about her having cancer and how she came through her cancer by early detection. Because if you don't talk about it, then how can you help anybody else?
0: For doctors like Sherry Erkman and Gerard Silvestri, the new, more inclusive screening guidelines put out this spring could accelerate a new era when doctors look patients in the eye and say, you will be fine. After decades of doling out death sentences, it would be a gratifying change. But without more awareness and better access, the change promises to arrive slowly, one family rewriting the story of lung cancer at a time. I'm Dan Gornstein, and this is Trade-Offs. There was so much we could not fit in this episode, including a conversation we recorded between a nurse and a patient deciding whether to undergo lung cancer screening. Check it out, along with a bunch of other reporting and resources for this story, on our website, tradeoffs.org.
2: We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Trade-Offs, and do check out some of that extra content we have on our website, tradeoffs.org. And while you're at it, click on that big orange button at the top of the Trade-Offs page. It'll take you to our listener survey. We want to know what you think of the show. We want to hear your thoughts, so take a few minutes to fill that in. It really helps us out. The Trade-Offs team is producer Ryan Levy, chief of strategy and operations, Jessica Silverman, operations assistant Jamie Song, sound designer Andrew Perella, and senior producer Leslie Walker. The Trade-Offs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman with additional music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Special thanks to Raphael Mesa, Stacy Fedowa, and Adam Yaffe. Additional thanks to Lori Fenton, Emily Ayers, Christine Chin, Paul Pinsky, Efren Flores, Samir Sonaji, Stephen Wallishin, Dusty Donaldson, Tina Shee, Evan Walker, and the Trade-Offs Advisory Board. Thanks also to all our listeners who helped to support our work, including Carrie Sadovnik, Gay Nicholson, and Limor Daphne. Tradeoffs is supported in part by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Arnold Ventures, the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics at the University of Pennsylvania, West Health, the California Healthcare Foundation, and the National Institute for Healthcare Management. The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of Tradeoffs staff, advisors, or funders.